0: sometimes in life, we don't understand why God does what he does. If you think back in your own life, you can probably think of a time when you really didn't understand what God was up to, and maybe you were even angry with him. Maybe your your finances fell through unexpectedly, or, or maybe you have, uh, like I can think of in my own life, loved ones and family members and friends who's who despite their faith and their trust in God and their prayers desperately that he would bring restoration and help and healing, their, their marriages fall apart. Maybe you, you see terrible things happen around the world and, and, you, and you don't understand why God would allow this and, and why God would do this over here. And, and sometimes we see what's in front of us and yet the reason that we don't understand it is because we don't understand who God is and his greatness and his glory and his grace and we also don't understand completely who we are in our sin and our need of him and as we think about God's presence tonight with his people as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and continue our series in the life of David what we're going to see is both the problem of God's presence and the joy of his presence and so as we look at Second Samuel 6 tonight, we're going to be looking at God's presence, and and particularly in, in David's life, as well as, as Cameron noted earlier, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and, I, and I heard this week as I was preparing for this message that uh, nobody knows, you know, uh, where the Ark went or what happened to it except for Harrison Ford, and I thought that that was quite insightful, you know, so... But <laughs> Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, where we'll look at the problem and joy of God's presence. Starting in verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And so, whenever you read a passage in scripture like this, I I think if we're honest with ourselves, the first time we read that, we're shocked. I mean, the guy, I mean, like, think about this scene. They're they're bringing the Ark of God back. This is a joyous occasion. Everybody's there. There's 30,000 people there, and they're bringing the Ark of God back. And David's bringing it back. This is a big moment for him. He is bringing unity to God's people and the kingdom. And and the ark is coming back. And and they're singing and dancing. And and it's a joyful day. And and all of a sudden, in the midst of this great celebration, if you could just imagine being at a wedding and dancing and singing and celebrating what God is doing in two people's lives by bringing them together. And then all of a sudden someone reaches out their hand, and they're struck dead. And U- Uzzah reaches out his hand, and, and he, he tries to steady the ark of God as it's falling to the ground. He doesn't want it to fall on the ground, because it, 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 in his eyes, if the ark touches the ground, it's, that, that would be unclean, and it would be inappropriate. And, and so he reaches out his hand to steady it, and, and God smites him. God strikes him down. And as you and I read that, like, what the heck is happening? Right? Like, we we come to passages in Scripture like this, and they shock us. And and here's the thing. Here's why I, I think that God has placed this before us in His Word. It's meant to shock us. It is meant to shock you for a reason. It is meant to surprise us. It is meant to show us something of who our God is and something of who we are that Uzzah had misunderstood as he reached out to study the ark of God. He is misunderstanding something about the holiness of God and something about his own sin. And so... Look with me at uh, First Chronicles 15, 11 through 15. I think this gives us some insight. Well, actually, we're going to go there in just a second. Go to Exodus 25 first. Cameron will have it on the screen if you don't have access to it in front of you. Exodus 25, verses 10 through 15. Here's what we read. This is where, in, in the Torah, God is giving instructions about the ark and its construction. And here's what it says. They shall make an ark of a wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that i shall give you and so we have to stop and think about what the ark of the covenant is the, do you know why we call it the ark of the covenant it's because it literally housed the 10 commandments these covenant documents that outlined how God's people were to live in light of who he was and his relationship with them. They were to love God and love their neighbor as as Jesus summarized the law. And so these primary documents that described the way they related with God were placed inside of this ark. And this ark was God's footstool, so to speak, so if, if you can imagine, like, I think about at home, um, how when, when I sit down on, on the couch next to my wife, I've got this, this footstool that I put in the corner until I'm going to sit down, and then I place it before me, and I put my feet up on it. And, and so whenever the footstool is out, you know that I'm there. You know that I'm present. Whenever I'm home, the footstool is there. And so, in the same way, whenever God's Ark of the Covenant is is present, you know that he is present. And so, whenever we think about this Ark, it's not just an object. And that's the problem with what's happening in this story. This Ark of the Covenant was being treated as an object rather than a symbol of God's presence among his people. And so... So we have to understand what the Ark of the Covenant is, and we have to understand why it's so important. Um, and 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 the reason it's so important is because, think about this, just think about the image with me. If if you've got four guys or or even two guys uh, carrying something that would be either a footstool or a throne on their shoulders, who's on top of that? A king. Only kings, only royals ride in such a way as their people carry them forward. And so the Ark of the Covenant was God's kingly footstool, the symbol of his presence among his people, and to disgrace the Ark of the Covenant was to disgrace the one true king, the one true God. And so as we look at this, God's word tells them how to carry it, right? It's, it's not as though they, they didn't know. It's not as though God just kills this man arbitrarily because he just feels like it. Because he's like, oh man, they dropped my stuff. And so I'm just gonna kick him in the face. You know, like God doesn't have temper tantrums like that. That's not how God responds. God responds with anger, but his anger is always righteous and good and true and just. God doesn't respond like a three-year-old whose toy has been tampered with. God responds in holiness and righteousness as a king who understands what is truly valuable. And so the reason these things happen in 2 Samuel 6 is because though God has revealed to them who he is and how they're to relate to him and how they're even to go about carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they have completely disregarded it. And, and if you look back at 1 Samuel 4 and 5, you see this moment where, where the Ark of the Covenant is lost by God's people. The Philistines have captured it. And it's just, it's comical if you go read it. The Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. Israel has fleed before them. And then they keep trying to find a place to put it. And the problem is they can't keep it with them because God's presence is a real problem for them because of their own sin and their rebellion against him. He keeps destroying their gods. And he keeps sending plagues upon them. And so in 1 Samuel 4 and 5, you read about the Ark of the Covenant being with the Philistines, and their god, their idol, literally falls in front of it overnight. And then they they raise it up. The next day, they stand it back up. They're like, well, this isn't cool. And so they stand it back up, and then the next night passes, and they walk in, and again, their god has fallen before the Ark of the Covenant, fallen before the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, and this time, the head of the idol and its arms are cut off. And so, like, if you walk into a room like that, like, the second day, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what to do. I need to run as fast as I can. Because, like, if you walk into your own house, into a room where you know no one has been present and stuff has moved, then what are you thinking? Okay, something is present here that I can't see. And something is present here that is much more powerful than me. And so the Philistines are like, oh, man, we've got to get rid of this thing. They're experiencing plagues. They're dying. And so they just keep sending it to each other. And then finally they're like, we can't have it. So we're sending it back to Israel. And then we come to 2 Samuel 6, and they're bringing it back. And the way the Philistines had transported the Ark of the Covenant is exactly the way the people of God are transporting it in 2 Samuel 6. And that's a problem because of what we read in Exodus 25. God has told his people how they are to respond to him, how they are to handle his presence among them. He's warned them. He's shown them. And they disregard it, and they act like non-believers. And so the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant on a cart from place to place. And, and then in 2 Samuel 6, you'll notice that that's exactly what's happening here. And they carried the Ark of the God on a new cart. So at least they got a new one and, you know, it's been washed. But they're doing things the exact same way the unbelievers are. And, and the problem is, is that if, if you proclaim to know God and your life looks no different than someone who doesn't, then I think you need to question whether you know him at all. If your life is lived in such a way as to where someone who does not know Christ, who does not know God, who has no relationship with Him, sees your life and their life and says, man, these things are pretty similar, then we've got a serious problem, friends. And, and if that's the way that our lives are being lived, then when we think of God's presence, then we have a real problem. And I, I think A.W. Tozer summarizes this well. Listen to what he says. He says, about the holiness of God, he says, we know nothing Like divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way that God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. And so when we think about God, friends, God is someone who is wholly other. He is different from us. Though we have been made in his image to reflect who he is and his glory, his character, and his ways, he is different than we are in a a way that is unique, in a way that we must respect and think about when we think about how we approach God. And one of the biggest problems with our own culture is that in our culture, we honestly believe that we can approach God however we want. And I think of a story, actually, from Israel that a friend of mine told me today. Pastor Luke was recently on a trip in Israel, and a friend of mine from work got to be on that trip, and he was telling me about this time they went to this one church, um, I believe Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They walk into this church, and, and before they go in, uh, someone tells them, make sure your knees are covered up. And I and think, "Well, that's kind of odd, you know. But it was deadly serious. That he had to have appropriate covering as he entered into this church, because the way they would see this is that if you walked into the house of God in a way that was inappropriate, you had no business there. And so he he was actually thrown out for wearing shorts. And I know that you and I are not going to approach our local church life in the same way, and for good reason. I think I don't think you should shun people for wearing shorts to church, but. Beside the point, I think it illustrates something about the the serious kind of reverence and way of thinking that we need to think about God. What they're getting is that there's something about God and who He is as the Holy One that they want to value and honor with the way they even dress. And what is not happening here is that same kind of reverence and understanding. And so Uzo reaches out his hand, and God. Kills him. And, and notice that in the first verse, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And so the leaders of Israel are here, the, the men of Israel, the 30,000 of them, Israel is watching. And God, like a good father who does not allow his children to disgrace things in public, reaches out And disciplines and judges and brings punishment. And so when we read this, and initially we're shocked, it's because we don't understand who God is and our sin and how that separates us from him. Isaiah talks about our sin as though our sins have hidden God's face from us. And so if you just think about that, like there's a problem with we cannot even approach him unless God does something. Our sins have hidden his face from us so that he will not hear us in our sin. And so it's a problem when we need God and we have no access to him. And so what God has done, and in the story of the Bible, I think you can argue, is that It tells the story of God's presence with his people and how in Genesis you see that God was present at creation with Adam and Eve, and then they sinned against God, and what happened? They were cast out away from his presence. They had to leave his presence as part of their punishment, and then the story of the Bible is not God just leaving his people astray and abandoned and apart from him. The story of the Bible is God pursuing them and God making a way For us to be reconciled to him. Though it would have been perfectly just. For him to exercise judgment and punishment. And that would be the end of it. Instead God and, and his great love for us. Makes a way. And so. Back to 2 Samuel 6 here. The point I want you to see from this first half. Is that. How we worship matters. And we cannot approach God on our own terms. I think of conversations with family members who think that it's perfectly acceptable to have constant addiction in their life. And sexual immorality and all sorts of other things happening in their lives. And then they they honestly believe that they can just approach God without that even mattering. As though God somehow in his goodness and his love would just ignore evil. And friends, the good news of the gospel is so much greater than that. It's so much greater than a God who ignores the bad things you've done. The good news of the gospel is that there is a God who has seen every evil thought and evil deed that has been a part of your heart and your life and has decided to love you in Christ anyways and has decided to make a way for you to be reconciled to him by taking the punishment on himself instead of you having to receive it. And so how we worship matters. And when we think about worship, there's a couple things about worship in this passage that I think we can see. There's this irreverence in the first half, and then there's this great rejoicing in the second half with David singing and dancing. And one pastor took a moment to think about this, and I think it's good for us to do so as well. The, the reason that we have a worship pastor is because we need someone to shepherd us and lead us in how we worship God. We think about our own experiences in different churches and and worship styles and things, and and sometimes we are in a church worshiping with a friend or a family member that is different than our church, and maybe they worship a little bit differently than you and I do. They have a different style. They maybe, um, you know, here I think most of the time, most of us have a very reflective, you know, thinking approach to worship, and, and, and we don't do a whole lot of hand raising, and there's not, not a whole lot of, like, tears and, and, and loud passion, right? I mean, we, we have a little bit more reserved style sometimes, and, and, and it's not all the time. Um, but Baptist churches kind of tend to trend this way, and then there's our our charismatic brothers and sisters who, who tend to trend the other way, where, you know, hands are up, and if your hands aren't up, you don't love Jesus, and, like, if you're not crying, then you don't understand the gospel, and you don't understand what God has done for you, and both things are good and right in some ways. There's appropriate times where we need to think about the holiness of God and see who he is and think about what he's done and reflect and... And worship in a way that is filled with somber reflection. And then there's, there's moments where with our charismatic brothers and friends, we, we need to be so overjoyed by what God has done for us that we cannot help but express it physically by raising our hands to God and worship. by by spilling a tear, thinking about the sacrifice of Christ for us on the cross, by shouting for joy about what Christ has done for us and how he has loved us despite our sins. And we have a, a worship pastor who leads us intentionally in our worship services by thinking through the moments of ecstatic joy that we should feel in response to the gospel and thinking about the moments of somber reflection we should have when we think about our own sin and God's holiness. And I love what Cameron does in our worship services because he structures it around God's word. And that's the problem we see in Second Samuel 6 is that they've forgotten how to worship God according to his word. And, and then we read in 12, and it was told King David, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, so like every few feet, he's, he's saying, listen, we have to worship. Because of God's presence among us. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So they used instruments. And I don't know if we as Baptists have somehow missed this, but he danced. You know? I mean, like, it's in the Bible that, like, dancing is not all bad. There's some you know, some more risque forms of it. I understand, like, need to stay away from that. But King David, the man who it was said was after God's own heart, dances in response to what God has done in being among his people. And he's so filled with the joy of knowing that God is present with his people that he cannot help but respond physically. And you read in 16, uh, as the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark for the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And so, praise the Lord, they ate, and we are Baptists, right? But in a a very serious note, like, God's people respond to God's presence among them by singing and dancing and being filled with joy and thinking reverently about his holiness and his goodness and his grace towards us and they gather around meals and they eat in celebration and they celebrate what their God has provided for them and David returned to bless his household but Michael the daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants female servants Servants, female servants, he's saying like, okay, your servants have women around them and you've dishonored yourself in front of them. Um, That phrase struck me as odd as I first read it. As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, listen to this. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It's a very sad way to end your life. But David, when he... When, when he sees this person coming to him, and, and Saul's daughter is angry. She's, she's angry at the way that he's acting in front of God's people. And he says, you're missing it. You don't understand. God has chosen me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. God has chosen me and placed me in this position. And I will celebrate before him. Despite what you think. And I think you, you and I have something to learn here. As we see David worship, we ought to be inspired to live our lives in such a way as to where people who don't know God, who don't understand the gospel, they don't understand why we do the things that we do. They shouldn't. And if they always understand the way you're living your life, then there's a real problem. And we need passages like this to open our eyes to the fact that our lives should be different after we experience God's love and His grace. Our lives should be changed. And we should worship in such a way as, as to where people think, man, that guy's kind of weird. Like, I don't get why he does this worship stuff. I think back to a time where I worked at the St. Louis Botanical Garden one summer, and I had a conversation with one of my coworkers about worship that day. He was an agnostic, and he said, I really don't understand this whole worship thing. Like, I, I understand, like, thinking about whether or not there's a God, thinking about whether or not he loves us, whether or not he has a plan, but the whole worship thing, I just don't get it. Like, why do you guys gather in large groups and sing, and, you know, I, I, I just don't understand it. And I said, well, think about it this way. What I believe as a Christian is that God has made us for worship, that he's made us to worship him, that he's made us as worshipers, and so that even if we don't live our lives in worship of God, we will worship something. We always worship. If you think about our own culture, the the way that we think about sports even, and 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 hear me, I love basketball and football, and I think baseball was a mistake, but that's okay if you love it, like, we're fine. You know, Eddie, we can still be friends. Um, And Clancy, I love you too. But here's the thing, like, the way we approach sports in our culture is we literally build stadiums to worship 10 to 20 men on a field. And we yell with the best of them when our team is winning, or when they 're losing, you know we'd, you know sometimes it 's a boo, but uh, or we yell at the refs in anger when they make a call that we don 't like i mean it 's like our whole life is over whenever the the guys clearly stepped on the line. I mean are you blind like you need to go get your eyes checked and and we get angry over these things, and it 's because we were made to worship and And we love in such a way that, and we express ourselves in such a way that we do worship. Whether it's God or created things, we will worship. And so he said, I'd never thought about it like that before. I never thought about the idea that even though I don't worship God, I might worship something. And what we see in 2 Samuel 6 is worship. It's, there's no other word for it. It is, it is worship, it is a lack of worship, and then it is joy-filled worship, and it's all about the presence of God. And as I said a few minutes ago, the story of the Bible can be described as God dwelling among his people, them being cast out of his presence because of their rebellion against him, And then God, despite how they've rebelled against him, seeking a way for that presence to be among his people again. And Jesus is how that happens. When we think about what Jesus did on the cross, he he was lifted up on the cross, and he had a crown placed on his head, and King of the Jews was written, and the irony of that moment is that though the Romans who crucified him, though the Jews who stood and scoffed at him as he bled out and died, the irony is, is they exalted the king. And the joy that you and I have is that though we have a problem with our sin, this holy God who is holy other, who is distinct And separate from our sin has come and become a victim of it. And because he's done that, because Jesus the King was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, you and I can dwell in the presence of God forever. And so that's the offer. Every time we gather, we preach this gospel. From the scriptures, from the front to the end, they tell this story. And I I hope that you know it and you rejoice in it. And I hope as we sing tonight, you sing with joy in your heart to the Lord. And I hope you sing with the kind of joy that David had. But if you don't know it, I hope this is the moment where you'll turn and respond. I hope this is the moment where God will open your eyes to the way that he has loved you when you never would have chosen to love him on your own. God has made a way for us to dwell with him, and it's in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though, like Uzzah, we often don't recognize who you are, your greatness, that just like David did in that moment, we often respond with anger towards the things that you do because we don't see you clearly. God, we thank you that despite all those things, you love us, you pursue us, and you've made a way for us in Christ. And so, God, would you open our eyes to to your greatness, to your glory, to your goodness, to your love for us in Christ. And Lord, let us worship and let us rejoice. In Jesus' name.